welcome to episode 259 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got an amazing, I don't want to say definitive, because we, again, we were saying that there's a lot to talk about in this whole series we're doing on theology proper, but we're about to get into some classical theism here, and I'm super stoked about that. Yeah, this episode will be an instant classic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well played. I'm trying. Well played. You Listen, stole that intro come... from me. I was going to I was gonna use that, were and it you? was going to be a teaser, and then you were like, it's about classical Sorry. theism. I was like, well, now my pun sounds like it was really forced. Sorry. No, actually, if if anything, I think people listen to us and say, this. nothing about this sounds forced. It sounds amazing. <laughs> It's true. Well, Jesse, <laughs> let's uh, not waste any time because I have a feeling this is going to be one of those topics that overflows into like another episode. Uh, and let's For just sure. jump straight into affirmations and denials. What do you got? So I'll start with some affirmations. I'm just affirming a nice little resource that is out there. You can get this for free. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's so helpful. And I'm affirming with Martin Luther's exposition of the Ten Commandments. I come back to this time and again, only because I'll say this way. One, I kind of find it hilarious. Not like in the mocking way, but in a, he just writes like so pointedly. And so much he writes about is like trying to dismantle the way that we have erroneously taken on the Ten Commandments. In fact, in even in speaking about the first commandment, he talks about toothaches and how under like the papacy you might have fasted and honored like Saint Apollonia because of that. And he just dismantles <laughs> all this nonsense yeah. while at the same time bringing a whole like host of practical applications and beautiful depth to the Ten Commandments. It's like a short read, and I've just found it to be like so instructive over the course of my life. So Martin Luther and his treatment of the Ten Commandments are fun. It's great. It's like a really wonderful resource. Yeah. Just a reformed podcast disclaimer. Uh, if you do read Jesse's recommendation, keep in mind that the numbering of the Ten Commandments is slightly different uh, exactly. for the Lutheran and Roman Catholic groups than they are for Protestant uh, and Eastern, not Protestant, uh, Reformed and Eastern Orthodox <laughs> groups. And I don't know what the Armenians do. I think they, I think it's a grab bag. They just kind of, some of them do whatever whatever they they do, uh, whatever they have decided with their own uncoerced will to do. Um, but yeah, just keep that in mind if you're reading through it and you're like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Why is he talking about the Sabbath when it's, it's, he's talking about the third commandment and the fourth commandment. Don't worry. Don't panic. Just do the math, back it up a little bit. It's all fine. It's all good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one thing I've always thought was really interesting Apart from the differences in the numbering, which has some real implications, right? That's part of the reason sure. why the Lutherans hold a different view on images than they do than the Reform do is because they see the commandment right. as a different. Uh, it's it's like images is automatically subsumed in monotheism, like the command to be monotheistic. Where in the Reformed world, there's a command to be monotheistic, and then there's a command not to make idols or images. So they're separate related things, but not the same thing. In the Lutheran world, it's all one command, and it's just basically like, don't be a polytheist. So it's other than that, though, there's a remarkable consistency in the reformational thought and reformational interpretations of the commandments um, in terms of what, you know, what it is that the core of each commandment is. Obviously, like Lutherans have a little bit of a different, Lutherans aren't Sabbatarians, for example, and the Reformed generally are. Um, But other than that, like, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's very similar. And I think that that's a strength of the Reformation is that, you know, there's kind of this, like, there's this uh, caricature of the Reformation where like every Protestant went to their Bible and came out with like radically different theology. And the reality right. is like even on like pretty nitty gritty particular things, like how what, what do you understand the Ten Commandments to mean? There's a pretty remarkable amount of unity. So just a little a little plug. Don't forget to if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to our uh, Lutheranism episode. And uh, we call. we did an episode with Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen from 1517.org, and it was a great episode. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it, and you'll you'll hear the unity and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I think like audibly in that in that conversation, and I think it was a good a good episode. This is one of those affirmations that comes with a bit of a challenge, which is remember to read outside your circle. So there's nothing yep. wrong. Like you're not going to be 
automatically fall under like amazing condemnation when you read this and be like, oh my gosh, I've gotten the numbering wrong all this time. Yeah. What you're going to see is that there is some differences in interpretation of this stuff, but it's really helpful to know that. I mean, first, honestly, just to know that it exists, it's out right. there and that to understand and relate to people in a different way because you understand where they're coming from. But there's so much in here that we can take away from. And Luther is just super good on this particular topic. He's good on lots of topics, but he's super good, except for Lord's Supper. Right. He's really good on this particular topic because he was just so straight-faced. He was just so like, this is what it ought to right. mean for us to do this thing if we're going to get about it. And I feel like sometimes in my own life, I need a little bit of that tough love. Like, yeah, this is what this means. Like, yeah. it's not just like the, you know, in honoring God and not using his name in some kind of vain way. It's not just about like, don't curse. Right. Of course we know that, but he really exposits that in such a really delightful way. It's both charming. It's a little bit funny. If you're not Catholic, it'll be very funny. And <laughs> it's also like just really challenging. So yeah. it gets to the heart of how you live out the 10 word, like the Decalogue in your daily life. And almost nobody does it better than Luther in this way. Like you almost imagine him sitting across from you at a pub, some kind of watering hole. And he's just talking to you about how he interprets these things. And you're thinking, man, this guy's like right on. Like I want to live like this. So I think you can just Google search like Martin Luther and the 10 commandments and you'll find this resource. Yeah. And you know, sometimes people uh, will accuse Lutherans or Luther specifically of being antinomians and Mm -hmm. reading Luther on the 10 commandments uh, will disabuse you of that uh, of that Good misconception call. pretty fast because although he is very clear that you know we don't live under the law as uh, as a, a means of salvation he's also extremely clear uh, even I would say Luther is clean uh, clearer than the Lutheran tradition following him uh, immediately after him he was very clear that the law still has an abiding place for the life of a Christian. Yes. Uh, as a moral guide and a rule for a living, which is is he's he's basically right in line for the most part with the reformed understanding of of the law and and the gospel, which is why it's so silly when people try to say that like the law gospel distinction is somehow distinctively Lutheran or is not reformed. It, it, it's like have you ever read any any Luther on the law and the gospel or Calvin on the law and the gospel? Like it's the same right. the same thing. Like that's not where the disagreement lies. So. It's a great recommendation, and one I think you know, like we all should go back to those classic sources once in a while, uh, especially when we start to think we really understand those classic sources. Yes, we're surprised. I'm surprised when I go back to a source like that to realize like all the little things that I missed or the big things that I missed. So yeah, thanks for that recommendation. That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. All right, you're up. What are you affirming with? So mine is much less serious than that. Uh, <laughs> I heard about this thing uh, which the National Parks Service does, and uh, in uh, Katami or Katmai, K-A-T-M-A-I National Park, which is in Alaska. They do this thing every year. Have you heard of this? It's called Fat Bear Week. No, I'm so curious where this is going. So by the time by the time that the listener hears this, the contest will be over. I, I came in a little bit late to the game here, but they set up a bracket basically. And okay. the point of this, you know, almost everything like the national parks services do has to do with like conservation efforts. So like the main point of this is to build awareness around like bears and hibernation and, and how actually like it's really important that bears have enough to eat because if they don't, then they won't make it through the winter. So what they did is they set up a bracket with uh, 16, uh, two, four, six, eight different bears. You like my quick math there. Uh, well eight different bears. And... um. Uh, it's not eight bears. Anyway, it's a bracket with a bunch of bears. <laughs> not every bracket has has a full line of bears. But then they show you, they have a picture, and there's this interesting slider where you can pull it back and forth. Okay. So, for example, the first entry is bear number 32, who they have named Chunk. And uh, the first image is taken of him on July 11th, 2011. And then you can slide it over and see what he looks like on September 13th, 2021. Uh, And it's it's pretty remarkable how much weight and how much bigger they get Uh, on the first picture. You know, bears are big. It's not like they're small, but you can see like he he looks a little bit more like a dog. Like he's he's got like a normal kind of like bipedal canine, almost canine looking body. And then on the next one, he's just this like bulbous round mass of a bear. Um, and you go down and it shows you a bunch of different bears 
and you can do that. And then the the contest was that you know like everybody votes for who their favorite bear is, and and eventually there's a winner. But it's just a fun website, and it's the reason I pointed out right. We talk about like adventures in Romans one. Well, there's also kind of like adventures in Genesis one, which is not something right. we've done before. But it's kind of like God's creation is pretty amazing, and it points to a yes. creator to kind of talk, you know, kind of kind of like connect to what we said last week, like God does reveal himself through nature and even something like the fact that God has designed these bears in a way where they can pack on weight over the course of like five months. And it's enough weight for their body not to take in any more calories or do anything really for, you know, like four or five months in the winter. Um, so it's, it's just an interesting uh, feature of nature that God has built in, but it's just a fun, it's a fun <laughs> little website. You get to see these, these skinny little bears turned into these big fat bears and it's, it's pretty cool. So I'm checking it out. I found my way there and it didn't take that much effort, surprisingly, I know. to come across this website. So apparently this is like a really major known quantity and there's an article from like NPR. This yeah. gets around. So yeah, I'm looking at this bracket here and I'm discovering that my understanding of bears is very, very thin. Yeah. So I, I love this idea. This is what a fun thing. What a fun way. Talk about like a wonderful way to like just celebrate innocently God's amazing creation and what he does in that creation. Yeah. And that this is just like one tiny little facet, like you said, to celebrate. And it's just a super fun way to appreciate something that guys doing also all these bears are legit yeah i think my favorite if i was voting for this is number 480 which is otis and in the before picture you can actually see his ribs like you can see his rib cage he's super super skinny and then in the after picture he's just this massive hulk of a bear and i love it because they they write these little biographies of all the bears so and they all of them have an identification number so 480 otis was four to six years old when he was first identified in 2001 and now he's one of the older bears at brooks river as bears age they experience a variety of challenges and otis is no exception in particular he's missing two canine teeth like they just go through and they give you this biography of it this is my favorite uh, let's see here Otis must compete with younger and larger bears who want access to his fishing spots. Otis is more likely to be displaced by these bears than he is to displace them. Still, he recognizes that patience is a successful strategy. Otis rarely makes an effort to chase salmon like the younger, more energetic bears. Once access to his preferred fishing spot is available, he takes advantage of the opportunity while expending little energy. So he basically he lays in the river and waits for salmon to swim into his mouth is what that's saying. But it I just it's just a it's a really interesting look at something that most of us don't think about. And these are all these are grizzly bears, right? These are big brown bears. Black right. bears have their own kind of like pre-winter routine and they don't they don't bulk up as much as as grizzly bears do but um it's just you don't think about what it must take you know everybody thinks about like bears hibernate hibernating and it's like oh yeah they just go to sleep for but like it's a ton of work it's a ton of effort it's a ton of like energy they have to expend to bulk up and to do this um and that's something that god has designed them to do and we're we're taught in the scriptures in various places to look to the animals to draw proverbial wisdom we have explicitly in the proverbs right look to the ants who prepare for the winter look to the ground like all these different things that we're told to do and we have to be careful when we're looking at nature because we are fallen creatures and we may draw the wrong conclusions, but something like this, we have good precedent to be able to say like the effort and the energy that bears have to do, like there's something admirable and and noble about that. And God has designed that and we can learn through that. So check it out. You can go to nps.gov and just look for fat bear week or just look on Google and type in fat bear week, 2021. You should find it pretty easy. It's just fun. It's fun to look at the way that these bears change between, you know, usually between like July and September when they've, they've bulked up over a course of a couple months. Bears beats classical theism. Yes. There you go. Jesse, <laughs> my denial might take a little time. So let's go ahead and, and move over to yours. Shocking. All right. So mine's going to be quick and I'm cheating because it's like a denial that's wrapped up in this sweet little candy wrapper that is an actual affirmation. So I promise. Oh, I think I promise. This is the last time I'm going to go back to this well, but I've got to take a dip in this one last time. And that is I'm still coming in strong against the Lord's Supper as purely memorial. And uh, I'm still stuck on this. Just can't stop, won't stop. Um, And that's mainly just because I think what happens in modern evangelicalism is we tend to just focus too much on a 
predominantly like Western and modern idea of what remembrance means. And so as I've been looking through at what the Bible, how the Bible describes remembrance, you know, like when, whenever God is talked about as remembering, it's more than just giving some kind of like intellectual assent to something that has like passed his mind. It's like pregnated with all this kind of action that God does something when he remembers. And this is just replete throughout the scriptures. So I'm denying against this idea again. And at the same time saying one thing that's been helpful to me is a book you recommended that somehow you came across that basically was like a word for the title was like a word for word, what I was looking for in a resource. Nice. And this is a book by Richard C. Barcelos called the Lord's supper as a means of grace more than a memory. Like you couldn't get like a more perfect title. And I was like, yes, let me read this guy's work. <laughs> it's really, it's really fantastic. And I think it has, you know, it is very technical in some ways. It's looking at the language of all these passages, but it brings them together in like a wonderfully cohesive way to explain that even when Paul says like, do this in remembrance of me, when Jesus says that, of course, and then Paul is quoting that elsewhere, like I've received that really delivered to you that we're talking about like the way in which God uses the word remember, which is to remember what God, how God has remembered you. And, and part of that is this action of eating and drinking is required in some sense because God in remembering always has some commensurate action that comes with it. There's always deliverance, there's always triumph, there's always victory. This is what God does when he remembers. So in some ways we're parroting what exactly God has done, but it's not this idea of like, we're doing this for God. Like we just forget and so somebody needs to just remind us that we ought to think about these things. It's very different than that. And I think that this book, The Lord's Supper is a Means of Grace, really hits on that again. So I, I won't say it anymore, but for the people in the back, it's more than memorial. So denying against that and at the same time affirming this book by Richard Barcelos, nice. which incidentally you recommended. So it's true. a kudos to you, sir. Yeah, it just goes to show how similar the uh, Presbyterian and uh, Reformed or particular Baptist world is on the subject of the Lord's Supper. That um, for the most part, obviously there are some differences, but for the most part, you could read a Presbyterian writing the same book or the same thesis as uh, uh, Richard Barcella does. There wouldn't be much different between how the two sides would present uh, the the nature of the Lord's Supper and, and what it represents and what it is, which is, Agreed. I think, a testimony. I've said it before. I didn't. People didn't love me when I said it, but I don't care. Uh, Reformed Baptists or particular Baptists and Presbyterians actually have more in common than uh, any other Protestant group has with each other. So For although sure. outwardly the the Lutherans and the Reformed or the Presbyterians probably look a little bit more alike in terms of their overall practice, theologically Presbyterians and particular 1689 Baptists are much more similar than any other group in the, in the whole Christian world is actually far more similar than like Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, which uh, might oh, be one sure. of the closer comparisons, like in terms of like sort of like cousin right. theology, like th- theological cousins to each other. So I'm glad that that book was of profit to you. And I'm, I'm, I should, uh, I'm hopefully someone might bring it with them when they come visit New Hampshire next time. And I can read it the next time they're here. Well, yeah. I also have it in Kindle, so oh, I can just that's true. send it to you. That's yeah. yeah it's great. It's great. Kindle's great that way. Actually, it's funny you mentioned this kind of like wonderful harmony there with respect to those two positions. It's actually so strong that, and this is kind of funny to me at least, that I think he recognizes that in authoring this book, that he actually gives a disclaimer like, I'm not Presbyterian. I still just can't sprinkle the babies, but you're going to hear a lot of stuff that's going to sound like we're very much in common. He's like, that's because we are, just so you know. I just want to put that out there. So it also, this is just great. Like if anybody wants a little bit of fire, a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of heat on this topic where you're kind of like, I need to be sparked again in my appreciation for the Lord's Supper. I found this book also doing that as well. So it's not just like a technical treatment. There's plenty of that, but there's also a lot of it that goes away and be like, and, and you think like, as I was reading this, I'm like, when can I get the Lord's Supper next? Like, I just want, I just want that now. Yeah. And I was just really you know, blessed to be able to be reminded of what an incredible institution it is that our Lord gives us and how this is like really God's manifest presence to us. Like anytime we're tempted to ask like, God, would you show up? God, would you come and be in our midst? Like all those things are impounded in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. More so is God saying like, like cut to God being like, Hey, like I gave you the Lord's supper. Like th- this is one of those things I've given you to demonstrate my presence, to demonstrate like, in a very real and profound and physical way that uh, there is something special about my people and that I'm present among them. So like, yes, eat, 
come and eat. And I, I just think that this book does a good job of helping us to do that. Nice. Yeah. Are you ready for a doozy? I think so. Like, so here's the thing. You did give me a heads up on where this was going, but I know you well enough that there could be many facets. I think I know where this is going. There could be many facets to this jewel. Yes. And we might find ourselves like deep in the mind. Yeah. When mind in the mind, when everything is, it could be in the mind as well when everything is said and done. So, (laughs) um, do you, so here's how you, let me ask you a question. How do you want to do this? Do you want to give the listeners a hint as to where this is going? No, or let's just are you go. just going to come straight go. out? So <laughs> I, th- th- we, there's no good way to, to enter this. So this is a, yours was a, a denial, like wrapped up in an affirmation or, or hiding an affirmation. This is like a denial that's like got another denial embedded in it. So on the surface <laughs> here, denials. I'm denying uh, the genetic fallacy. And so the, the genetic oh, fallacy. Here we go. Is an inf- so there's two different. This like can be a little logic lesson. There's two different kinds of fallacies. There's formal fallacies, in which you you look at a formal argument. You know, uh, all uh, so for example would be uh, all men are human. Plato is a man, or Plato is a human. Therefore, all men are Plato. Like that's an it's a formal fallacy because the logic doesn't actually follow through, right? You could say all humans or all men are human. Plato is a man, therefore Plato is human. That would be fine. Right. But if you say Plato is a human, therefore Plato is a man, you've reversed some of the arguments. And so it's a formal fallacy. There are informal fallacies in which uh, where the the form of the argument is not necessarily what makes it a fallacy. And in a lot of cases, these don't actually even have a form to the argument. But they're fallacious because there are ways of making it look like you're addressing a claim or an argument and you're not actually addressing a claim or an argument. So the genetic fallacy is when you look at a claim. So let's say Jesse makes the claim that that Richard Barcelo's book is great, right? And, and I want to discredit that. And I say, well, Jesse... Uh, Jesse wears glasses, therefore, like the argument, then therefore, like the book's not good. Well, it's that's that's an ad hominem attack, but it's it, that's a type of genetic fallacy. I'm discrediting the uh claim, not because of anything about the claim, but because of the origin right. of the claim, right? Right, and so the way this comes, uh, comes to my field of view in this last week uh, is here's where the second denial comes in. This is just like a standing denial. Like it could be our new tagline. I feel like Uh, I'm denying Doug Wilson just in general, especially like we're getting to November, which is my favorite time to hate on Doug Wilson because it's his favorite time to just be a tool on the internet. Um, This, uh, this comes up and I want to be a little bit serious about this because this is a significant thing that that's happened. He, he had an article written about his church in, uh, on vice.com and vice is a very liberal, very progressive, uh, kind of propaganda engine. Uh, but tons of Christians out there just looked at it and they didn't even read the article and they just dismissed everything it said as not valid because it's vice. Because, well, you you can't trust anything that vice says. Well, that's a genetic fallacy. So every, even, even every, you know, once in a while, every blind hog finds a nut or every blind squirrel finds a nut or whatever the proverb is, right? Every once in a while, a bad source gets it right. And and so you have to evaluate the claims that are being made, uh, in light of the actual claims that are being made, the evidence that's being presented, the strength of the arguments for their own merits. You can't just discredit these claims that Vice makes strictly because it's Vice that makes them. Um, That doesn't mean that you treat every source as equally reliable. You might be more skeptical of a claim that Vice makes. You might investigate the the claim um, more in depth because it's Vice that's making it. But it doesn't mean you don't investigate the claims. And so I'm denying the the genetic fallacy because the claims that are made in this article, uh, they're very serious. They're very, very serious claims. Um, they're not just the, the typical Doug Wilson is uh, theologically suspicious and, and a bit of a tool kind of claims. They're like, if these claims are true... Uh, like Doug Wilson could be going to jail kinds of claims. So I'm, I'm not going to go through the, the article. That's not the point of this. But the point is that when we, when we see something online or anywhere else, we need to do the work of evaluating the claim. We need to do the work of dissecting 
and investigating the arguments that are made and the evidence that's presented, not just dismissing those uh, those arguments because of who it was that made them. Likewise, accepting an argument simply because right. of who makes it is, is another kind of flipped form of the genetic fallacy. It's usually it's called an appeal to authority at that point. But um, likewise, you know, if I said like, well, you can just read Michael Horton's book because he's Michael Horton and, and everything he says is great because he's Michael Horton. Well, that's genetic fallacy, right? I'm, I'm not evaluating the claims that are being made in that book. Likewise, if I say don't read anything that that Wayne Grudem or Doug Wilson has ever written, because no matter what it is, it's false because Doug Wilson or Wayne Grudem said it. Um, just to be clear, Wayne Grudem and Doug Wilson are in totally different categories in my mind. Right. Just to put that out there. That's also the genetic fallacy. So as, as Christians, we should be thoughtful. We should care about the truth. We should care about investigating the truth and presenting the truth. I do want to read this line from um, from uh, the Vice article just because I think if anyone has ever pegged Doug Wilson more accurately than this, I'm not sure they exist. So it says here, cigar puffing and presenting like a Christian philosopher king on YouTube, Pastor Doug Wilson is a radical provocateur even among outspoken Christian conservatives and appears to relish Twitter wars and blog battles. Now, I don't know how you could, how anyone could dispute that that's true. I don't even think that Doug Wilson would dispute that that's true. Like he would look at that, like, yeah, that's an accurate understanding of who I am. He takes an entire month in November to be even more abrasive and aggressive and not hold back than he usually doesn't. So I think we have to think about that. And the reason we have to think about that, it would be easy enough to dismiss an article like this and say, like, we shouldn't care what the world thinks. We, sh- we shouldn't care except for the fact that the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 explicitly say that an elder must be well-regarded by outsiders. Right. It must be well-regarded by outsiders. Now, that doesn't mean that we're never going to have outsiders who look at us, and either because they're trying to attack us or because they're confused about what we teach, right? The early Christians were accused of cannibalism because they said they they ate the body and blood of Jesus Christ, right? So obviously there are limitations to that, but generally speaking, when the, uh, the, the watching world can look at you and recognize that even among those that they, they consider to be the same classification, I don't think that someone at Vice is going to look at Doug Wilson and think that they're a radically different category of person than Jesse or I would be, even though within our own circles, no one would, no one would say Jesse and, and Tony are really anything like Doug Wilson in terms of theology, in terms of demeanor, in terms of approach. But Vice is going to look at us and be like, well, yeah, they're all a bunch of crazy right-wing Christians. Right. Even they can recognize there's a distinction, and even they recognize, even among us, he's he's controversial. So don't do the genetic fallacy. I'm not going to recommend you go read this article. It's a hard article. If you're going to read it, make sure you, you're going into it. Um, there's, there's discussions about rape and other kinds of abuse situations. It's a pretty hard article to read, but I think that it's important that Christians recognize that this stuff is being seen by the outside world. And frankly, the reason that the outside world needs to do this kind of investigative reporting, it's not, yes, I hear you. It's because they hate the church. Okay. Yes. In a broad sense. Yes, that's probably true. But the reason that they need to do this investigating, investigating is not necessarily that exclusively. It's because the church is not taking care of cleaning up its own business, honestly. So read the article if if you're so inclined and also recognize it's not as though this information that they're presenting is not something that's already out there and known and has been discussed by Christians. Um, Scott Clark has assembled a long list of articles. There's a, a Twitter uh, a Twitter username, whatever it's called, uh, and a Facebook group called Examining Moscow that has collected a lot of stuff. Some of its stuff is out of context. Some of it's not not necessarily the most accurate representation of what's going on, but most of it's pretty good. Just go in with your eyes open and don't discredit the claim just because of the fact that it came from a source that you normally would not go to. This is happening with COVID stuff. It happens in theological circles. It happens now with this, where someone's saying like you can't trust the claim. It happens when a when a woman comes forward and says that she's been abused in the church, or or a man comes right. forward and says they've been abused in the church. Oftentimes, that person's character is attacked in order to sort of like make it look like their claim is unrealistic. 
when whether or not they're a, a, ordinarily a liar or a thief or they ordinarily are engaged in sexual promiscuity, whatever the excuse might be, doesn't actually validate or invalidate the claim that they're making. So I, this this weighs heavy on my heart because I think a lot of Christians are kind of putting their head in the sand on this kind of stuff. And it, it really is not it's not helpful for the church to do that. At the end of the day, this is a matter of making sure that it's beautiful that, you know, the Apostle Paul, who is like a realistic man who dealt with people, worked with people, ministered to people, and also had hierarchy, some authority over them, at least in his previous life. He says, like, yeah, test everything. What I appreciate about that is it's just, that's just like fundamental, like down to earth, rubber meets the road kind of advice. And it we should expect that from the scriptures if it's telling us the truth about reality, because that's what we ought to and need to and really do in all of our lives. So I say that all because I'm kind of harping on this in, I would say, agreement with what you said, because sometimes we get this in a weird way. So like people will reach out to us and be like, I can't believe like you affirmed or not, sorry, affirmed is like a word we actually use to describe a segment on this show, like that you agreed with so-and-so or that you use this quote from... What we're saying is like our sieve, our paragon is the scriptures itself. So it's possible. So even with my recommendation, I don't agree with everything Luther said, but there's no doubt that Luther gets a lot of things right when we judge what he's saying by the scriptures. There's many things he gets wrong. There are things I'm going to get wrong. But like to just throw the baby out with the bathwater altogether is problematic. And it happens on like both sides of that spectrum so that we just end up in this pit of error because we've gravitated toward the ends rather than trying to understand like what it is that somebody says compared to what the scripture teaches us if we know that's the rule for life. And I think it's what kind of what you're saying here, like in the sense that like Doug Wilson is purposely antagonistic, this is problematic because when we take that and we marry it up against the scriptures and what it says about like elders in particular, you know, I think like uh, Calvin is particularly helpful there. He says something like that should be translated as giving a good report. Right. So like, it's one thing if people disagree with what you're saying because they're like, the gospel is offensive to me, but there's still like this good report that you should be able to have among those who are outside the church, even as you're presenting the gospel. It's almost equivalent to in the shadow of our savior who, when he was on trial, they could actually not produce any witnesses right. that would say that Jesus had actually done anything wrong. Even though he's saying all these things which they found offensive, there was still nothing about which they could give a bad report of him. And that's kind of what we're after here. So like to your point, if somebody from the, the outside the family of faith is writing an article and saying, this dude kind of appears to like really love to get after people and to be disagreeable. Like that does, that should give you pause, right? right. You should be able to step back and be like, Okay, well, that's interesting. They're taking that stance, and especially somebody wears that on their sleeve is saying like, "No, no, that's right. I, I can totally get behind that." Even if you try to turn that and catch it as, "Well, I'm being very particular about my faith. I'm, I'm trying to emphasize and bring people to a place where they see that like there are things that they ought to do to reflect Jesus Christ, and that these are radical things." Yeah. I I would like to think that you could cut to the Apostle Paul again, being like, "Wait, what? Like that's not what I'm talking about at all. That's not how any of this works." Yeah. Yeah. The way that I like to think about it, and I'm just going to pick Sinclair Ferguson just because he's probably one of the most like gracious, humble, like above reproach people that I can think of. If someone said, um, let me just read this. If someone said um, that uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a radical provocateur, even among outspoken Christian conservatives and appears to relish Twitter wars and blog battles, <laughs> like... Like anyone looking at that, even the secular world would look at that and be like, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Like that, that's an, that's just that's an untrue statement. Right. Right. Now there's always a little bit of gray on the edge of that. Like you could take things out of context. Maybe that Sinclair Ferguson has said and made it look like he's, he's picking a fight. But when you actually look at the whole of it, like it's a ridiculous claim. It's a ridiculous thing. And when the scriptures, when Paul talks about being above reproach, that's what he's, he's getting at. If someone's right. to bring a charge against you, the watching world, including non-Christians, should actually look at it and think it's a little bit it's a little bit silly. And and I'm not right. I don't want to like try to puff myself up, but like I, I had an experience at work, at least had been a couple of years ago, where someone accused me of lying about something, and my manager actually said, You obviously have never met Tony. Now that's not to say I've never told a lie or that I don't tell lies. Like I'm not perfect, but my life is not characterized by telling lies. It's characterized in the eyes of my coworkers as being committed to being a person of truth. So 
the watching world is better at assessing things than we often give them credit for. And again, yeah, yep, I get, I get it. Like, vice hates the church. Vice hates God. Yeah, I, I get it. Like, I'm a Vantillian too. Right. But like, we have to recognize that even though that's true, there still is the Imago Dei in those people and they can't escape it. And so sometimes we have to recognize that when they identify something, they're telling the truth. And, and that's what it is. And again, like, this is all about like, as Christians, we should be people who are eager and loving of the truth. We should be people who seek truth and have our eyes open to the right. truth. And to go back to like the origin of this, like the genetic fallacy or disregarding something someone says simply because of who says it, that's a way for us to ignore the truth usually. It's a way for us to discredit without having to do the work of actually investigating it and accepting sometimes the hard implications when what they say ends up being true. Wow. That was great. That was, I don't, do we end the episode here? Do we actually <laughs> we, we probably should, because I think we probably have at least like another hour and a half to go on our actual topic, which we should probably get started on. Well, so to diverge and take the path in some ways less traveled, that is the one without the Doug Wilson sign. Let's talk about some classical theism. And I like this idea of talking about classical theism as opposed to one particular essence right. or part of classical theism so that we could talk about the whole thing in a, in a broader sense, which one would normally think if you're listeners of us that we've left plenty of time to do this. And of course we haven't, but we're going to fit it in anyway. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start out with some definitions, right? Because, because sometimes do we, we use words uh, and that's part of what we're doing, right? Just as a reminder, we're starting this kind of ongoing series, ongoing, I, I guess it's just the podcast now. It's not a series. This is just what the podcast is for the foreseeable future. In sort of going back to the basics, getting to the fundamentals of Reformed Christian theology and practice, right? We're going to probably front load it more with theology, and eventually we're going to start talking about practice. And of course, those things are intertwined along the way. But Talk we're starting practice. off with theology proper, which is the, the doctrines about the nature of God. And then once we get into Trinity a little bit, theology proper also kind of talks about the Father specifically. And so right. we're, we're starting to talk about what, it, what, it, what this thing is or what, what it means when we say the word God. What are the definitions that are attached to that word for the properly reformed Christian theology that we're trying to explain? And, and one of those things is, is called classical theism. And so classical theism is actually a collection of, of doctrines that surround the attributes of God, primarily the attributes of God and how we conceptualize them. And it's marked off by things that on the surface, most people would be like, well, yeah, of course. But the reason that we're, we're I'm going to spend some time on it, the reason we're going to spend some time on it is because these are doctrines that actually have been eroded. Uh, and and sort of discarded in really the last hundred years, but it seems like especially the last like five or ten years, there's been a lot of things published and said and spoken about that just sort of disregard these. So the main the main things of classical theism have to do with the fact that God as as um, an entity, God's essence is radically different in every way conceivable than, than the creature, right? So we, right. when we use words to describe God, we actually have to describe in most cases what he's not because it's not possible for us to describe what he is, right? Voss, uh, Voss in his reform dogmatics says something like we cannot, uh, we can't give a dash definition of God insofar as we can only describe him. We can't define him. We can only describe him. And so the big things that we're probably going to talk about today are going to be things like divine simplicity, that God is not composed of parts that are prior to himself. Uh, we're going to talk about things like divine immutability. God can't be changed or moved. Um, we talked about that last week a little bit. Um, and then we're going to talk about things like omnipresence and omniscience. And, and again, we usually think of those in terms of like, God is everywhere. Well, really, actually, we're saying something quite different than God is right. everywhere when we say divine omniscience. And the reason this is important is because there's this constant tendency in human creatures, and it's, it's understandable, in our reflections about God, there's this constant tendency to try to make God more like us, to make him more explainable. And I right. think sometimes well-meaning Christians, I'm looking at you, Wayne Grudem, I'm looking at you, William Lane Craig, well-meaning Christians, right? I'm trying to give them the charitable benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to be mustache-twirling heretics. The well-meant Christian is trying to stay close to the biblical language 
And then now that a lot of times they've divorced themselves from the traditional of the tradition of interpretation of the Christian church, they're seeing that the Bible uses this anthropomorphic language that that reveals God under language that that is creaturely. And then all of a sudden they start to pull God's essence down and reflect on it as though it actually were creaturely. And so when we talk about Christian theism, classical Christian theism, the reason it's classical and Christian is because this is actually the the, the theism, the doctrine of, of God that the church has had more or less across the board, whether it was the Western church or the Eastern church some variations, some nuances, whether it was the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestants, whether it's, you know, the Reformed or the Lutherans, whatever division you want to make within the Christian church, broadly speaking, everybody has had this same basic presupposition that God is this collection of things that we call class, we can now call classical Christian theism. In before it started to become questioned, we just called it Christian theism, right? Because there wasn't any other, there wasn't any other real competing Christian theologies. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, oh my goodness, there's so much more that we could say about like how this has amazing practical underpinnings. But I think in lieu of that, we should just kind of get into it a little bit, especially because we're trying to do this as a kind of a primer to maybe expose people or reintroduce to others some of these basic concepts. So let's just get after it. And you mentioned a couple there, and it's probably best for us to rock through them, so to speak, and to give some of what how we would understand them and how we might present them to others and how they would also are intertwined with actual Christian living. So one of the ones I, I feel like does come up a lot for me is the simplicity of God, right. which like you said, I think it sounds really simple. Like I almost said simple. It really <laughs> sounds really strange on the face, right? If we, I'm just going to embrace the pun now. Simply put, the simplicity <laughs> of God just means that, like you said, God's not composed of parts. So he is one God in this oneness and unity extend through his entire essence. So when we say that God is simple, what we're not saying is that this somehow contradicts his majesty or his right. eternality or his omniscience or his omnipresence or any other attribute that is found in God alone. We just mean, we simply mean, that God is not made up of parts. Right. But I think when you say that people, they'll be like, well, what's the big deal? I, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't really understand that. And the thing is, the biblical doctrine of simplicity is really kind of related. Actually, I'm not sure how you feel about this. My theory is it's really related to like the idea of, of the aseity of God. So yeah. the aseity of God describes that God as the living God does not derive his life or his value from anything or anyone. He is dependent upon nothing and no one for his existence. Yeah. And so we need to start with, if you don't think this matters, just start with thinking about how that's so entirely absurdly different from every living thing. So like every living thing that exists has its life derived from something like creatures have parents, biological parents impart life through means creatures are dependent upon food and energy sources to sustain their life. And if you go even deeper, like your body is composed of cells, like your body is extremely complex and your life is dependent upon those cells and your cells are dependent upon DNA and DNA is dependent upon the construction of like chemicals and chemicals are dependent upon like molecules, like hydrogen and oxygen, carbon, all that, all that stuff. So one might be tempted to think that since God is more majestic, glorious, and infinite, that he is then ever more complex. But that's exactly the opposite of what we're saying. Why is that the opposite of what we're saying? Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, this is one of those things. I think that Christians who have studied the scriptures and have done even a moderate amount of reading or even a, even a pretty like basic level reading in uh, Christian systematic theology I think this is one of those things that they actually almost intuitively get at. And the reason I say this is because when I was very, very new to any sort of formal course of theological training, I think it was my first year of seminary, and I only took one course, one actual theology course in my undergraduate, uh, and it was on the Trinity, but we, we didn't talk about divine simplicity in that course. I don't know how we got through without talking about divine simplicity, but we did. And I remember I was involved in this sort of online discussion group called the Rational Gang. I don't even know how it came to be or how I how I came to be a part of it. <laughs> nice. But they were having this discussion about how they define God as the sum of all great making properties. And there was just something about mm. that that didn't seem right to me. And I kept on saying like, no, 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 God, you don't just add a bunch of attributes up and that's God. Right. And my reasoning at the time, which I was actually probably closer to on than I thought, but... Is because God is infinite. And so like, no matter what you have for great making properties, there's always, there's an infinite number of more great making properties out there that God could add to himself. If it's just the sum of things, like you can't have an infinite sum of things. Maybe you can with this math stuff we've been talking about, but 
but it's something that we kind of intuit. And the reason is because let's just pretend that God's not simple for a second. And let's say okay. that um, he is the sum of all great making attributes. And let's just say that some of those attributes are love and righteousness and uh, graciousness, right? Let's say that those are those three things. Well, right. love in this model, love alone can't be God because God is the sum of these three things. And righteousness right. alone can't be God because righteousness is not is not the sum of love, righteousness, and holiness, right? So you have these three things that are not God, and when you combine them together, they make God. And so now God is not dependent on God is not dependent on anything pri logically prior to himself, but if he's the sum of these three things, then he is the he is dependent on love in order to be God. Love, in some sense, right. makes him God. Well, so that's right. why you're you're a hundred percent right about it being directly connected to aseity. I actually think that divine aseity and divine simplicity are actually the the same thing, which which makes sense if we're talking about God being simple, right? It, Divine aseity means that there cannot be components that are not God that somehow give God his godness, right? So the technical definition of the way Christians conceive of, of simplicity is something along the lines of God is not composed of anything which, which gives him his essence as being God. His essence is not dependent on logically prior parts that somehow constitute him. And that's really, really important because if we look at the way that other other theisms out there conceptualize God, whether it's a polytheistic or a pantheistic theism, or if it's a monotheistic theism like Islam or some articulations of like Jehovah's Witness theology sort of has this kind of thing going to it, there are elements which actually make God God, right? So in Islam, Allah is God but he adds things, he, things have to be added to him after the fact that don't make him more God, but somehow actually are added to him. So Allah can't, can't love anyone. And so a lot of Muslims don't, don't actually think that, that Allah does love anyone, right? Uh, some of them would say, well, like, yeah, he loves in his own particular way, but most would say, well, no, like uh, love is not something that we talk about with, with him, with God or with Allah. Like that's, right. that's why this is important because if we're going to be properly Christian, we have to understand this reality that God cannot be dependent on anything outside of his essence in order to make him God. That's the definition of a satiety, which is the other big, you can kind of divide these things in classical theism as like the first layer of classical theism. And then each of those, those things actually have like implications that kind of go further up the pyramid of classical theism where the other things above them, which we'll talk about in a minute here are really just logical outcomes from this baseline and simplicity and aseity, which I think are actually the same thing. That's the right. basic, that's the basic understanding, right? This is, um, if you look up, uh, on, Google, what is, you know, what's the definition of cl define classical Christian theism? Wikipedia actually gets it right. It says classical theism is a form of theism in which God is characterized as the absolutely metaphysically ultimate being, right? right so the, right the absolutely uh, metaphysically ultimate being by definition cannot be dependent on anything because that would mean that that thing precedes it logically. And in, in most articulations, would have to precede it temporally, too. So if we're really going to get an understanding of the, the God who is the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things that are not God, you have to have this understanding that God is, he's independent, he's asse, however you want to phrase it, and that entails that there is nothing logically prior to him that makes him God, not even subdivisions and components within himself. Right. If he somehow is made to be God because of anything other than the fact that he is God, then all of a sudden you've lost this idea that he is somehow the radically independent, absolute one in the entire universe. Um, because either that thing is God and somehow communicates divinity to God, or that thing is not God and somehow makes God to be God. And both of those both of those conclusions just don't work in a Christian system. Some people's minds just imploded. I think my mind just imploded. <laughs> but this is good because, you know, in part of wanting to honor God, sometimes we try to make him super complex. So we speak about the fact that God has like all of these attributes. How many books have been written with that title? You know, right. even A.W. Pink, whom I like very much, like the attributes of God, that's a, that's a great book. But what we have a tendency to think then is that, well, God is the sum of all these constituent or component parts. And like, he just has more parts than me, right. or like he has a pu the purity of the parts is what's reflected and that makes God, God. So I think where this, we come into trouble here is, and you and I said this before, the aseity of God 
and the simplicity of God mean that any attribute of God that we speak of, while we're trying to, let's say, like extract some kind of discrete element so to describe it so that we can get a better sense of who God is and learn more about him, so let's say his righteousness or his justice, when we say that he is simple, though, what we mean is like his righteousness is his justice, is his love, right. that these discrete component parts are not separated in the same way that we are. And we ought to appreciate this because that means then that there is a cohesion, a perfectness, a complete perfection and a harmony that we do not understand. So that when God does something in righteousness, it is also in love and justice. Right. There is no separation. There cannot be because he is simple. So this is of great practical value to us. Yeah. So like just to, just to sort of like put another angle on it to try to help make this clearer. Right. A lot of times the way this is explained is to say like, well, divine simplicity means that God's love is a righteous love and God's righteousness is a loving righteousness. Well, if we were to say that about, you know, like I, I can say this, hopefully Jesse doesn't get too embarrassed when I say this. I think that Jesse's love is a righteous love. And I think that Jesse's righteousness is a loving righteousness because Jesse, in my experience, is characterized by both righteousness and love. But I appreciate that. <laughs> there are things that make Jesse's righteousness loving and there are things that make Jesse's right. love righteous. Uh, that that are separate things, such that yes, we could conceive exactly. of. I, I mean, I guess we could conceive of Jesse's righteousness that, as not loving or independent of his love. When oh, we say sure. that God's righteousness <laughs> is a loving righteousness, we're not saying that God does things or that things happen that make God's righteousness loving or that God exercises His righteousness in a loving fashion. What we're saying is that fundamentally. You cannot conceive of God's love apart from right. God's righteousness, such that his love is his righteousness. And if that's true, then he is always loving in a righteous fashion and he's always righteous in a loving fashion because that simply is the way that his righteousness and love are. And then you take that up a, another level and actually that's just how God is. That's just what God is. When we say God, we're saying righteousness, we're saying love. Those words all actually refer to the same single simple reality. But because we're creatures, like we talked about last week, because we're not we're not simple creatures, we're simple entities, because we're composite, because our language is composite, because our thinking is composite, we can't even talk about this stuff in a way that doesn't present right. it as though it were composite or complex realities. But but because of this, this is where it, you know, I, I'm I'm um I'm an elder at my church. I fill the pulpit maybe six, six, seven weeks a year, and I'm working my way through James. And I've been starting to study for whenever the next opportunity I have to preach is, and it's um, it, it's going to be in James uh, chapter one, right? And it says, "All good gifts come down from the Father, uh, from the heavenly Father of lights, in whom there's no turning or shadow of change." Right. So his ability to give good gifts is related to the fact that he doesn't change. And the fact that he doesn't change, as we'll unpack here in a second, is actually because he's simple and can't change. Right. right? He cannot be tempted by evil. Right. That's how that, that passage opens. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone by evil. Well, that's not that that section of the scripture is not not disconnected from the immediately following passage, which emphasizes basically that there's no composition and no change in God. That's why his promise is sure to us. So these, these, these sort of esoteric kind of arcane doctrines, it's not as though they don't have import. They don't have significance in our practical lives. And just to point it out, like Wayne Grudem, who I, I, everyone knows that I love to hate on, hate on Wayne Grudem. I don't actually hate Wayne Grudem. I actually really care for the guy. And I really hope that he figures out where his error is so he can come to a fuller understanding of the truth. But Wayne Grudem presents a situation where uh, Christ's submission, the son's submission to the father in eternity past is actually voluntary, meaning that it's Christ exercises his will or the son exercises his will. Well, in order for that to be true and it for it to be truly voluntary, then we have to at least conceptualize of a situation or conceptualize that Christ maybe could have not submitted. Son, the son maybe right. could have not submitted. Otherwise, it's not actually voluntary, right? There's no, there's no meaningful way that we can say it's voluntary if it's not, not in some sense a, a um, sort of like a possible alternative, right? Um, every Arminian in the world is like, yeah, but that, that's not that, that's a different <laughs> conversation, right? So, so Wayne Grudem actually separates the son's will from the son himself in a way that div d divides them. And now what we've got is a situation where maybe the son didn't, maybe the son could have chosen not to submit to the father in eternity past. Well, what would that even mean? What if the son somehow now decides to not 
voluntarily continue to submit to the to the Father. Right? What does that mean for our salvation? So these right. doctrines, they're, they are arcane, and they are esoteric, and they are difficult to understand, but that doesn't mean that they don't actually have some significance for kind of our daily understanding and our daily life. Right. Well, like you said, too, what we tend to do is smuggle them in. We just don't, don't know the names. So we're, in some ways, we're kind of labeling or slapping like a post-it note in this and saying, this is what it calls, this is what the Bible and how the Bible describes it. So like maybe to round us out, we talked about simplicity. We mentioned aseity. Let's go to like the other big third one here, which you already mentioned, but like you did top shelf segue. I have to admit, <laughs> top shelf. So let's talk about like just briefly and then around this out, like this idea of immutability right. should be part of this classical theism. So we've already said that God does not exo- owe his existence to anyone else. He cannot be anything but what he is. This is what I would call like Popeye theology. I am what I am. <laughs> so, but what we're saying here is if we take that further, if we actually see the logical outworkings of what that means, what we're actually saying in addition to all those things is that what God is today he always was. Actually, he tells him. He tells right. us that's how he is. Like Jesus Christ is the same today, tomorrow, forever. So he never began to be. There never was a time when he was not, and there will never become a time when he will cease to be. So something like, I don't know, like dogs have evolved, I suppose, like remarkably in some ways from like the first pair that came out of the ark to like what they are now. They sit in our living rooms and on our laps. But God does not evolve. He doesn't grow or improve. Right. All that God is at this very moment, he has ever been and ever will be. He cannot change for the better because he's already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Right. This is what immutability means. Right. Yeah. And this is, again, all of these, it's almost like I've never thought this before and I don't know how I didn't. The reason that it sounds like we're saying the same thing when we talk about all these things <laughs> is because we're actually talking about the same thing, right? Yeah. Even though our language is composite and we can't get to the fact where we actually are using simple terms to describe a simple reality, we are stumbling to sort of like even make these distinctions between immutability and aseity and simplicity, because in reality, we're actually trying to talk about the same exact simple reality. And so immutability is related to simplicity, because uh, if we were to say that God could change, apart from what Jesse just said, which is perfectly correct, that either God improves and wasn't perfect and therefore wasn't God, or God somehow has the capacity to become less than perfect, which a perfect thing doesn't actually have the capacity to become less than perfect, or it's not perfect because there's some kind of weakness in it. Right. But even even if we go a different angle of it, if there's the potential for something to change, then there's some sort of composite between the actuality of what something is and the potential for what it could be. Right. So we talk about potential and kinetic energy. Right. If I hold a ball in my hand, there's a certain amount of potential energy that's existing in that ball that has to do with the kinds of motions that could happen, the kinds of energy that it could expend. If I drop that ball, there's a certain amount of energy that's converted from potential energy to actual energy uh, or to kinetic energy as it moves through the air. Right. So there's this there's this composite, even if it's just a conceptual composite, there's this composite of potential and actual, even within creaturely things. Well, in God, there's no potential for change because either God is entirely actual, right? That's what we talk about in classical theism. When we say God is pure act right. or actus purus is the Latin term for it. He's either purely actual, meaning that he is everything he is. Everything that he is, is actually what he is. There's no, there's no part of him that has not yet been expressed. There's nothing within God that is somehow not entirely active and real about God, right? For me, there's all sorts of things that I could potentially do or be, right? I could potentially grow hair that is not currently growing. My body has the capacity to, uh, to grow muscle fibers that it doesn't currently have. Right. So my body can change because of this potentiality that has not yet been actualized. Right. So when we talk about immutability, we can't conceive of a, of a simple God who is mutable because either, either that means that he is, everything is potential and something that only is potential doesn't actually exist. It's only potentially real or he's entirely actual. So between those two, obviously we acknowledge that God exists. And so he must be entirely actual. And, and again, like some of this seems like 
it seems esoteric and it seems like, well, you're, this is obviously just a philosophical construct on things like this isn't in the Bible. I don't have time or expertise enough to go through the Bible and show you exactly where all that stuff is. So the, this, the, probably the most significant popular level treatment of this that's come out in the last five years is called all that is in God by James Dolezal, right? This is like, this is the immediate, every Christian who wants to understand this stuff needs to pick up this book and read it. The other option or the other, other really good entry in this, although not directly related to divine simplicity, but closely related is we had Dr. Adonis Vidu on our show and he, he just published a book called uh, the same God who works all things. Right. And that's, that's an application of the doctrine of divine simplicity to the way that God operates uh, towards creation or at extra. So all of these things come together to give us this image of God who is so radically perfect and so radically real. He's so actual, you know, the title of Dalzal's book, all that is in God is God, right? That's the, that's the sort of like punchline to that. All that is in God is the name of the title. And the punchline to the book is all that is in God is God, right? All that is in God, righteousness is in God. Well, that righteousness is not in God. It actually is God. God is his righteousness. God is his love. God is his, his graciousness, his, his long suffering, all of these different things we say about God. He is his name. He is his knowledge. He is his presence. And you see this language in the Bible. That's where we see this doctrine in the Bible, right? When, when, when he say the Lord is his name, we're not saying like there's some, some, uh, external moniker that gets attached to this God. We're saying, no, no, the Lord, the Lord is his name, right? It's not just that like, yeah, his name is Yahweh. Well, that's true, but his name is Yahweh because Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the Lord. Those are the same things. And it's important for us as we we really kind of round this out. You can't emphasize this enough, right? We're already we're already coming up on the time on this podcast. And I, like I'm already feeling like we could do another episode on this. We could do another episode <laughs> on classical theism. We could do another 10 we episodes could. on classical theism. Yes. And it probably would be worth doing because there's so many misunderstandings and misapplications of this. Wayne Grudem gets it wrong. Bruce Ware gets it wrong. John Frame totally right. gets it wrong. Scott Oliphant got it wrong and now has admitted that he got it wrong, right? William Lane Craig gets it wrong. There's all sorts of really, really significant popular theologians out there that just totally whiff it on this. And, and they, they do it because they're trying, they're trying to be faithful to the Bible, but in, in the way that they're trying to be faithful to the Bible, they're ignoring this wealth of resources and reflection that the scriptures have given previous generations. And they're kind of trying to reinvent the wheel. So, you know, it's, it's a hard topic to understand, but dude, do check out those books, right? I mean, you can look at Herman Bovink has really good stuff in the dogmatics. Any, any good reform systematic theology is going to have a good articulation of this. And it's an important enough doctrine that it's worth doing the work because at the end of the day, you know, I don't like, I don't like the rhetorical move that happens sometimes where like, People try to say like, well, that group worships a different God, right? The Arminians do this to the Calvinists all the time. The God of Calvinism is one thing. And then the God of Arminianism is another thing. I mean, I guess on a certain level, what they're trying to say is like the characteristics of God are so different between two groups that we should really shouldn't think about it as though we're worshiping the same God. But the reality is like the actual attributes of what most Arminians are trying to say versus what most Calvinists are trying to say are not all that different, but if we're talking about a God who is perfect and assé and simple and immutable and everywhere present and nowhere absent and nowhere ignorant and nowhere lacking potency, right? All of these different negations that we have to say about God versus a God who isn't perfect because he's developing over time, right? That's process theism. Or in some sense, John Frame or Scott Oliphant were saying that God develops over time in a certain way of thinking or God who is composed of parts, a God who who became temporal in creation. So creation fundamentally changed him and is no longer immutable. William Lane Craig explicitly denies uh, divine immutability, right? The difference between a God who is immutable, unable to be changed because he's entirely perfect and fully actual versus a God who is imperfect, changed by his creation and only partially actual. 
That's a that's a different God. And so this this Christian classical theism is among the ranks of those doctrines where if you really, really get this wrong and you follow the implications of it out to their logical conclusions, then you're not only wrong about the doctrine, you're not even really a Christian anymore. And I know that's a strong statement. And again, I'm not saying that William Lane Craig or Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware or any of the people I just named, I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm saying that there's a happy accident that they have not followed the conclusion of this theology to its end because you end in a non-Christian a non-Christian religion when you follow this to its logical conclusions. When Mormonism followed their doctrine of God to a logical conclusion, they ended up with something that's not Christian. When when Jehovah's Witnesses did that, they ended up with something that's not Christian, and we know that. Well, William Lane Craig and Wayne Grudem are actually just a, a little bit, they're not quite as far down the rabbit hole as as Joseph Smith or, um, you know, Taze Russell, whoever, those guys as far as they got. And by God's grace, God's not going to let them get that far. We, you know, I pray for that on a regular basis for all these guys, but it's important to get this right. Cause if you get it wrong, you're going to end up somewhere that isn't a Christian position at all on all sorts of things. Right. And I don't want anybody to feel too discouraged by this. So the great benefit is that we have the Holy spirit that's leading right. us into truth. And so what we're basically saying is like test everything, including us go yep. to the scriptures and process this. But the whole point of this conversation was to bring at least these three particular terms into the light. So to say, this is what we're talking about when we say classical theism, that there is boundaries around this and that these things are worth looking into at the end of the day, in the final analysis, this is, we, we gravitate toward these truths, right? Like anytime I hear somebody speak about the value of like genuineness and authenticity, I think what they're asking for is simplicity, simplicity in essence and being yeah. that like who you are is who you are. What you say is what you say and what you mean is what you mean. And in some ways we get this because we're after that creator, that divine transcendent essence that is these things where there is no separation that actually our complexity is the very thing that gets us into trouble and the very thing that actually we dislike about ourselves is that we are this complex. Yeah. We'd rather be more cohesive than we are. And with any self-reflection, we find that that's the direction we want to move. And when we look to the scriptures, there we find the one who is pure and simple and beautiful in the midst of all these attributes, unites them harmoniously such that they are what they are. It's the most beautiful reflection of Popeye saying, I am what I am. <laughs> yeah. And the only one who can actually do that is God himself. Yeah. Well, Jesse, just a little bit of quick housekeeping before we wrap up. Don't forget, do dear it. listener, that you are uh, listening to a podcast that likes to give away books. So we have a contest <laughs> going true. right now for uh, Covenantal Baptism, which is a book by Jason Helopoulos. Heliopolis, uh, which is a book about paedo-baptism. It's Presbyterian <laughs> writing a book for Presbyterians about Presbyterian baptism. But you, dear Baptist listener, will also benefit from it, even if it's just Absolutely. by properly understanding the other side of the conversation. So Amen. this episode will air on October 8th, and the contest closes at midnight Eastern Standard Time on October 9th. So you will have a full almost 24 hours, 48 hours. 48 hours almost to uh, join that contest. And you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 259 to enter that. There's one of those modules that everybody hates to love and loves to hate where you go to Facebook and you do this thing and you do that thing. But go ahead and enter to win. Uh, we're excited to give it away. I, I haven't read the book myself yet, but I've heard it's very good. It's published, I believe, by PNR, and they really only publish great stuff. Um, so check that out and uh, enter to win. And keep keep tuned because we're going to keep giving away uh, good books in the future. Maybe someday we'll give away all that is in God. You get a chance to read that, or maybe you're going to get a cool t-shirt, or maybe we're going to buy a Calvin bobblehead and give that away. We're going to give away all sorts of stuff. So make sure you're uh, keeping an eye on that, listening in to hear what we're giving away next. And again, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 259 to enter that contest. Here's what I want to give away. Can we make this happen? We don't have people. I don't know, maybe if the, you need a staff to do this, but we give a combo away where like you not only get a book, but like the author shows up or like the author, you get a half an hour with the author to talk about like the book. That would be epic. Like here's not just Chad Bird's book, but like you get to here's talk to Chad, Chad Bird. Bird for like <laughs> here's Chad Bird for like 15 minutes. I feel like we'd have so, to be like hyper specific about how that works. We'd have to be like, all right, if you live in this town in Texas, then you can enter and we'll have Chad meet you at a coffee shop somewhere. Speaking of that, that's a good reminder. If you do not live 
in the continental United States or Canada, we are not going to ship a book to you. I'm sorry. But we will, if you live in the United States and Canada and you want to enter, we can work something out where we get you a uh, gift card of equivalent value to purchase an electronic copy or something like that. So please, personally, dear listener, if you live outside (laughs) of the continental United States, please continue and enter and we will figure something out if you win. But we're not going to be able to ship you a book because it would cost more than the book to ship it. So... That said, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-huh.